0: Welcome to OnScript's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at OnScript.study/slash biblicalworld. Hey, Biblical World
1: listeners, this is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for tuning in. In this episode, we've got a cross-listed episode with uh, OnScript and Biblical World podcasts. And we are, uh, I'm speaking with Kyle Keimer about his work on the Assyrian uh, invasion of Judah and Hezekiah's preparations for it. Really fascinating subject to me. And so I was really privileged to sit down with a Biblical World co-host, Kyle Keimer, to talk about his dissertation research on this subject. So hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks so much to our producers on the podcast, to Jason Stark, who produced this episode, and also to Taylor Terzek, who produces for us as well. So thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like to give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, we would be very grateful. Hey, Biblical World listeners, this is Matt Lynch here with Biblical World co host Kyle Keimer. Kyle, how are you doing? I am pretty good today. How are you doing? I'm doing a okay. Um, Kyle is, for those of you who don't know him properly, Ah, uh, he's senior research fellow in the Department of History and Archaeology at Macquarie University, where he was uh, senior lecturer in archaeology, history, and language of ancient Israel uh, for twenty over twenty years. He uh, excavated in Israel and Cyprus, uh, and he was the uh, co-director of the Kirbet El Rai excavations. I guess you're technically still co-director, and you know, in terms of getting those publications out and and the feature
0: length film. <laughs> related to those sites I'm sure right yes yes it's it's uh it's gonna be a blockbuster
1: yeah okay uh daily life in Kirba al I think we'll we'll draw the crowds I would count on dozens of people to watch that <laughs> <laughs> literally dozens <laughs> and he uh he's an author of various articles and editor co-editor of, of books as well including registers and modes of communication in the ancient Near East and the ancient Israelite world which is a, a recent, that just came out this year, I believe. Yeah, earlier this Rutledge. year. Yep. And he wrote his dissertation at UCLA on the socioeconomic impact of Hezekiah's preparations for rebellion. And this conversation actually came out of an email I sent to uh, Chris and Kyle. And I asked, I, I hadn't remembered that this was the name of your dissertation. <laughs> and I was like, hey, what do we know about like the socioeconomic status of 8th century Uh, Judah. And you're like, well, Well, you sent back the (laughs) dissertation, which was precisely on that subject. So I'm really
0: glad to speak with you about this, Kyle. Well, I'm happy to talk about it.
1: Yeah. So I want to actually just get into your background a little bit and hear what drew you into archaeology and biblical geography
0: as well. Uh, Initially, what were some of the draws that brought you into those fields? Well, for archaeology, I mean, I think you're growing up in the, the 80s, Indiana Jones, obviously, was one of the big things I you know, watched those and said, wow, I want to do that. I want to whip things, blow things up. I mean, that's just what archaeology is. So sign me up. (laughs) No, well, yeah, it was always an interest. But then I was also really fascinated always with the Bible as well. The Old Testament was so foreign. And so combine Indiana Jones, which is dealing with some biblical themes anyway, with the actual Bible itself, and you got a recipe. And then I went to college started in physics. Turns out I can't do math though. So you kind of need to do some math to do physics and said, well, I want to do something that doesn't inquire or doesn't require hardly any math. Let's go do a dig in Israel. And I loved it. And that was the the beginning. And then, um, as I went to Israel, um, I was just so fascinated by seeing the actual remains and I had opportunities then as I went into grad school, to, to go over there uh, repeatedly and actually worked with a company called Biblical Backgrounds for a while. And we did a kind of company tour where we just went around all of Israel and all of Jordan for a month straight, visiting as many sites, as many regions as possible, and just fell in love with the land. And that has stuck with me. And it's, it's really been such an important part of my own scholarship and understanding of the biblical text, the biblical story, um both from a personal and an academic level of how things kind of come together and what holds all of that together and that is the land itself
1: yeah you know reading your dissertation it's clear that you have both the the sort of deep experience of archaeology at specific sites but also the lay of the land in general Uh, and I can see how both of those things of going around to all the sites in in one month uh, as well as excavating at one
0: particular place over a long period of time pay off yeah and every summer i would go over there i just rent a car and every weekend go off and explore new sites and say well i haven't been to this place let's go do it and if people want came with me great otherwise i just go off and explore myself and see these things and kind of build this impression of all the different regions of the land and what it was like
1: and when you pull up to a site let's say you're renting a car and you go to a site what are you doing
0: when you go there uh i i generally i like to look and get a sense of the lay of the land um where the site is, what it's kind of topic or geographical feeling is in that broader region, then look at the specific archaeological remains if there are any as well. And then I I typically have a map in hand, a nice biblical backgrounds map. Um, And so I can situate myself in three-dimensional space, and then I start to piece together the history. Okay, what, what took place at this site or what took place in this region? What are the themes that we see going on here? Do we see similar themes across history um that might be tied to the geographic reality of this location or this site and so for me it's it's um working through multiple levels from the very specific to the broadly regional to the kind of synth- synthesis of everything including the text
1: yeah and you mentioned in your acknowledgments the influence of James Monson on you uh, I guess he's the son of John Monson. Do I have it the right way around? Other way around. There? So Other Jim, way around. Jim, okay. Yeah, Jim is the dad and John's okay. the son. John's the son. Okay. So uh, explain the impact of both of them on you and the discipline of biblical
0: geography. Yeah. So John was one of my professors at Wheaton College when I was doing my master's and he was the one who really introduced me to the land and their background is that, that Jim was the uh, president of JUC, Jerusalem University College, in, in Jerusalem on Mount Zion for uh, 30 years or so. And so John grew up over there. And so these two individuals probably know the land of Israel better than, better than anyone else. I would say better than most Israelis, actually, because they were constantly out leading field trips, exploring the land, pulling everything together. And they passed that on to their students, and I was the benefit of that. And so when I had the opportunity then to start working with Jim, uh, I jumped at that, and it, it kind of just it just steamrolled from there.
1: Yeah. So, your dissertation is on the socioeconomic impact of Hezekiah's preparations for rebellion. So, help us locate Hezekiah historically, and what are the geopolitical kind of dynamics during his reign that are so significant?
0: Yeah. So we're looking at the end of the 8th century. And of course, there's a a debate about when precisely Hezekiah reigns. You've got two options really from about 727 to 698 or 715 to 687, if I remember correctly. Um, I think most scholars probably tend to go with the latter option at this point. But regardless, we're looking at the end of the 8th century. And bigger picture what we're looking at is this is the um, real arrival of assyria so you know assyria has been around they had already made their their entree in the ninth century before kind of falling apart but they've come back again in the days of tiglath Pileser or so we're looking you know 7 45 to seven twenty seven or so so they come in and they've already decimated several of the levantine kingdoms down through damascus and starting to chip away at the northern kingdom of Israel along with the Philistine kingdoms to the west of Judah. So Judah is in a place where, you know, you're you're as a king, you're thinking, okay, what is my next play going to be? Assyria is coming. Really, there's nothing that's going to stop them. I mean, there are various coalitions that were formed that tried and to a certain degree were successful sometimes, but the writing's on the wall. And how are you going to respond to that? Are you going to eventually try to resist them? Or are you going to just give in with the potential um, realization that either they might kill you or at least ship you off to another part of the country as part of their deportation process. And so you've got a really difficult situation then as a king. And this is what faces Ahaz and what faces Hezekiah in particular, as we know from the biblical text. Ahaz opts to you know, pay off and bring the Assyrians closer to solve a local problem. Hezekiah then you know, takes an a about-face basically yeah so why are the assyrians why do they
1: care about this area like what's the big deal with israel and judah
0: well i i don't really think they care about judah at all uh, i think that they care about israel just because it's in the way of getting to egypt and i think if we look at the way assyria expands and what they're after which is on the one hand an ideological um realm or an ideological perspective of we're we're expanding the piece of asher and we want to take over but in a more realistic realm it's we want to take access to all the trade routes and get all the goods that are flowing around the near east in this first millennium and there's a lot now israel sits right on the main international north south route and some of the east west international trade that that links arabia with the mediterranean so it's kind of a no-brainer that assyria would be interested to take over that region Judah, however, is up in the mountains for the most part. And unless they expand westward into the south, they're not really tapping into this international trade. So for the, the Assyrians, Judah doesn't matter so much unless they try and get in the way. And I think that's what takes place in the days of Hezekiah is he sees an opportunity to expand and to kind of grow his own little local kingdom. But then that ultimately brings him into greater conflict with the Assyrians.
1: And that expansion that you talk about, is the expansion
0: westward into Philistia right right to the west and and to a certain degree to the south as well now Mm -hmm. Into into the Negev yeah and Judah already had a presence in the Negev I would argue going back to the 10th century um and they've maintained that presence and that is where all the the incense trade and trade from Southeast Asia is coming so it's really lucrative to control that that area um, you at the same time though, you do have local power starting to rise, and there's a greater interest then on the Assyrians' part to control the outlet of this this long distance trade, which is really the region of Gaza where everything kind of comes together. And so if for the Assyrians, if they can control all of Philistia, that that's like a double whammy. They get the north-south and the east-west trade as long as nobody again is infringing upon that. And it puts them on the doorstep of Egypt, which is really where they want to go, because then that opens up a whole nother realm of access to precious stones, minerals, gold, things like that. Tourists wanting to see the pyramids. Exactly. You know, and there's an inscription from Shalmaneser that says, I just love the pyramids. I can't wait to see them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, that that the Israelites built, as we know. Uh, as of well, course. Right. So you, you talked about Gaza, you know, toward the coast there. Is that... Um, are we talking about like shipping trade as well during this time or is that is it kind of too early for serious shipping trade happier are they just kind of like floating boats up the coast or are they are they doing like hardcore mediterranean trade
0: yeah i, I would say they're, they're definitely doing some some hardcore mediterranean trade at this point <laughs> you know mostly at that the the helms of the the phoenicians so they're the ones that are doing all this and so this is why they always seem to get better deals than many of the people that deal with the Assyrians is because I think the Assyrians recognize the Phoenicians have this specialized knowledge of seafaring that is going to benefit them. So they give them a a little bit more leeway, not necessarily free reign or anything. but um, So there is that aspect of it. But if you can control the land routes, then you kind of cut out the middleman. You don't have to deal with the Phoenicians per se. You can just tap right into direct control of these routes.
1: Yeah. And are there ports serious ports further south or is it primarily up in like the tire region where where are the sort of Mediterranean
0: routes coming through yeah you've got a, a couple um, that are further to the south so Ashkelon potentially hat was a major port um there is Ashdod Yam which is like the sea port area of Ashdod the the extent of that though I isn't exactly clear in the Iron Age I would say Um, Gaza potentially also had a a sea kind of harbor area, but we know absolutely nothing really about archaeology of Gaza. Can't just go dig in there. No, not so much. (laughs) Uh, And then there's a couple of sites further to the south, actually along kind of closer to the Wadi al-Aresh that that, um, is in Egypt today. And we we have references in Assyrian sources to um, the Karu. These are like the trading depots uh, that would have controlled land trade, but potentially some of the sites that are located south of gaza are are along right along the mediterranean coast so they might have also tapped into some of the sea trade
1: so and and i'm asking all this to just think about like so judah you know according to what you've described there is going to be economically poorer
0: but strategically militarily more protected being up in the mountains right yes and to a certain degree i think i think that they're still tapping into some of the trade coming through the Negev because. For all intents and purposes, we know they've got Arad, Beersheba, several other sites, some other fortresses down in the Arava and further south that would allow them to, you know, get a piece of that trade coming through. But how much north-south trade they're getting? That's probably a lot less because the Philistines are their own entity to the west, and they don't. Judah doesn't really have great access that direction, so they're getting maybe a, a portion of the pie, but not as much as. You know, say assyria wants that's for sure
1: right what about like copper and other you know like that sort of trade are they
0: involved in that do you think uh in in this part of the iron age in the eighth century the copper as far as i know has shifted back to cyprus um so the the mines at timna and phenan which were you know the mines in the early iron age you know 11th through 9th centuries in particular seem to have really gone out of use and the the main copper in the later part of the Iron Age is coming back from from Cyprus, which is where it had come in the Bronze Age as well. So you know, Judah isn't really on the line to tap into that kind of trade so much. But again, the spice trade that's coming through the Negev would have been something they could have been a part of. The The trade in fabrics probably also as well. Other than that, yeah, you know, they, they don't have anything that really stands out and makes the Assyrians go, ooh, I want to go there and get that. I mean. Grain. Ooh, grain. Well we can go. That. Wine? Uh, maybe there's some really good, you know, you know, seven thirty BC, you know, vintage, you know, Pinot Noir that they love. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um now it's helpful to get that sort of economic picture because that's a big part of what you're analyzing. But as Hezekiah is moving westward and southward, he's he's now stepping on the Assyrians' toes and, and Tell me about the sort of strategic gamble he's making at specifically in 705 bc
0: yeah yeah well i think you know one of the things we see in the ancient East is that when a king of a powerful country or kingdom dies this is the moment that the people that have been subjected to them kind of rise up and say aha here's our chance to see if we can throw off their um their yoke And you could find any number of these kind of references throughout different Assyrian annals, other annals as well. And this is what happens in 705. So Sargon, um, the second, is killed in battle. The Assyrians kind of go into a um, kind of challenging situation. Sennacherib basically has to deal with revolts in uh, in babylon and further to the east as well and then he also has to come to the west and deal with rebellious kingdoms in the northern levant the southern levant if he wants to maintain his kingdom and so over a period of his you know the first three years of his reign this is exactly what he does he just basically is constantly fighting wars to try and reclaim the territory and say guess what guys I'm still pretty powerful and strong just like uh, just like Sargon and you know my dad and I'm going to continue to reign here so get in line and I think this is this is the context here for Hezekiah is that number one they're on the fringes of the Assyrian Empire they certainly I think have a knowledge of what's going on in the world I mean none of these smaller kingdoms live in a vacuum and so to think that Hezekiah wouldn't have known that there were rebellions happening elsewhere that Assyria might be in a state of disarray is I would say just wrong i mean i I think clearly they they have this understanding and so you're presented with an opportunity then to say okay we can now test the assyrians and see if they're gonna come back if they're gonna if they're really here to stay if they're gonna be powerful enough to stop us oh and by the way the philistines don't like them the egyptians don't like them let's just kind of all get together i mean we're we're in the majority here and we know from past times that coalitions can actually stop them so hey what's what's there to lose i mean you could die obviously but what's there to lose really <laughs> so hezekiah's he's not just throwing off the assyrian yoke
1: on his own they're they're banding together he's joining with the philistines or
0: like who who's he joining so it, you mentioned the egyptians as well right it seems you know i mean this is kind of how we have to reconstruct from references in the biblical text and from some extra biblical sources as well is that the egyptians clearly are not fans of the Assyrians, and they seem to join up with with the Judahites um, as a way to stop. The Philistines as well, um, as we know, both from Assyrian sources and the biblical text, they also were, most of them weren't pro-Assyrian. Um, and we read about different intrigues where the Assyrians come and try and put a pro-Assyrian king in Ashdod or Ashkelon. And then Hezekiah comes and the Philistines rebel and they kick out that pro-Assyrian king and put a pro- judahite king or an anti-assyrian king at the least and so this coalition is is forming then through these different intrigues again whether that's to control the access to all the trade or it's just to drive Assyria out I mean it's all kind of related
1: and and so at this time Hezekiah is sort of the senior negotiating partner relative to Philistia at least as he's also (laughs) encroaching on their territory
0: yeah. And the reason why I think this is, and I think that's a really good way to say it, is because Judah has had the benefit, as you mentioned earlier, of kind of being up in the mountains. And so for the last three hundred years or so, they really haven't had anyone invade their territory and disrupt their economy. Um, and and even before that, right? I mean, you can go back You've got, you know, a couple campaigns by the northern kingdom of Israel that, that challenge Judah, or maybe they influenced Judah for a, a very short period of time, maybe a couple Edomite incursions, but these are all fairly limited in scope. And so the Judahite economy is probably stronger than any other economy in that region because the Philistines, number one, they're smaller territories, smaller entities, but they've also been attacked already and sacked a couple times by Assyrian kings to the south, there's no um, really coherent political entity that controls or has settlements of the scale that you find in the Shvela or in Judah. I mean, you've got uh, either Arabian tribes trading through there, or you've got Edomites as well. Um, but again, it's of a different scale, if you will. And so Judah really is unique in this this regard in that here's an infrastructure that hasn't been challenged and probably is fairly strong at this time because of the the lack of interruption, but also because Ahaz, right, Hezekiah's dad, paid the Assyrians off and becomes a kind of pro-Assyrian vassal right from the get-go. So there's no reason for the Assyrians to come in and impose any of their policies per se on them, aside from tribute, which, you know, we have a couple Assyrian sources that mention the Judahite tribute from the days of Tiglath-Plazer or Sargon II. So,
1: Hezekiah, he's making this gamble. Sargon has died. Sargon the Second has died, <clears throat> and um, he re- he revolts, joins this coalition or helps form one, and uh, he also then makes uh, a, a sort of network of strategic defenses, or at least beefs them up during this time. And this is a big part of your work. So, so talk about like what sorts of preparation he's making. In, in the event that Assyria gets mad, which of course they will, and attacks. And what what's the evidence of those defenses?
0: Well, let me give a little background, because the, the I guess, rationale and thinking about like a defensive network for Judah is something that I came to in reading about classical um, civilizations, a lot of Greek um, literature dealing with the different city-states and defensive networks that you find around them, and, and just having a broader interest in Warfare and the way that that impacts all all aspects of society if you will And so these interests are what led me to kind of start thinking about what well, did, did Judah have its own kind of coherent Defensive network, and so I started to look at Well, where are the sites located? Where do we have fortifications? and what might be the strategic rationale for any of these given sites and gradually i would say it started to came in at least in my mind it came into finer resolution that yeah there was actually a coherent defensive network because sites are located sometimes away from any trade routes or any natural resources why are they there but when you look at them they have this amazing strategic perspective that allows for communication or relaying of information and it's the confluence then of the geography tied to military concerns as we know from kind of the broader military history of the world that 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 kind of gave me the framework for looking at the archaeology through fresh eyes if you will and one of the things we see is not only that many of the sites are located outside of what we might expect if it's just natural population growth or you know they're trying to access resources but also the number of these sites increases and they they vary kind of from region to region in Judah so the, the types of sites, the distribution of sites that we find in the Shvela looks very different from what we find in the Negev, it looks very different from what we find in the wilderness, it looks very different from what we find in the Central Benjamin Plateau. But there was always an underlying logic to the distribution of those sites that, at least in my mind, is tied to a strategic um, element for, for military purposes. All right, so you've got this,
1: this concept of a strategic network of defense, because uh, you, you want a coherent strategy if you're going to put up a, a legitimate effort uh, against the Assyrians. You know, this is no small weak opponent, the most powerful kingdom in the known world at the time. So tell me about what qualifies something as a strategic defense. Wh- what are some of the factors at play, and where are the most vulnerable places for Hezekiah as he's looking at? the entirety of Judea.
0: I think we need to step back and ask an even more fundamental question, and that is, if you're going to rebel against Assyria, what do you need if you think you're going to be successful? And the number one answer, at least in my mind, is you need supplies. You need food, because even if you're going to face them in open field battle, you need to marshal an army. You need to feed them, right? Everything kind of hinges on people being able to eat food and not starve. If you're going to kind of deal with Assyria um, by the sieges of attrition, well, you're gonna need even more food. So where do you grow this food? How do you grow it to keep it safe from you know, potential Assyrian uh, interaction or even the, you know, the robbing of other nations around you? And how long does it take to actually prepare food and stockpile it in a meaningful way that isn't going to be gone in one summer or, or sorry, one winter. And so, you know, I started thinking about this and again, there's a lot, uh, well, there's not a lot, there's some written about this again in, in classical sources that got me thinking along these lines. And when I started to factor in, I think this very real question, it, it, allowed me again to, to look at the archaeology and the distribution of the sites even more meaningfully. Because again, you have many sites that just aren't on agricultural land or on agriculture productive land. So why are they there? Again, would give me an impetus to think that they're probably tied to some strategic function um, that would you know, require or would be connected to observation or the passing of information via smoke signals, which is something we know they did in the ancient near east already from you know the the old babylonian period in mari and when we then also look at the lamellic system which is something i know we'll talk about here in a second we have these four place names that show up in these inscriptions that scholars haven't always agreed on what they represent or where they're located but i would argue are actually the centers of the four most agriculturally productive regions in judah that are also uh, well-geared for producing agriculture and safe from enemy invasion, as safe as they can be. So it's not that they're on the fringes of the kingdom. They're not in valleys that are open to invasion, per se. They're in more guarded regions of the kingdom. And if we allow for this and say that this is the case, again, the settlement uh, pattern that we find starts to come into greater view because you're going to find larger cities in the shrey where you have these but these are a different pattern than these lamellic jars which seem to be of an administrative structure so there's the multiple systems taking place or operating at the same time none of which i think operate um this is a individually but none of them are kind of clear in if we only view them in and of themselves
1: right so that's what i love about what you were doing in in your dissertation is is kind of bringing all those components together and thinking about okay, for to mount us a, a meaningful defense, you need economic strength and military strength. You need both of those things. And so, where where is the economic strength going to come from? Of course, it's going to be the land. How does that function? So, you mentioned the Lamellic seal impressions. Talk about what those are. So, Lamellic belonging to the king or for the king. And this shows up on a number of of uh, clay jar handles and why are people concerned about these and how do you think they're operating what
0: does that tell us about hezekiah yeah oh such a series of easy questions you throw out (laughs) (laughs) let's see the lamellic jars so these are as you mentioned they they mean lamellic just means belonging to the king or of the king and so it's generally understood by scholars that these are royal jars. That is, they're they're store jars that are holding supplies for the use uh, by the the royal uh, household, uh, whether that's through direct use by the household or through extension through the administration, and probably more so the broader administration, because we've got something like upwards of 2,000 preserved jar handles. The number of actual restorable jars is far less than that, but we, you know, we can know, based on the number of handles, that the actual number of jars was far larger than we even see in the archaeological record. The fact that we have such a large number of these, and they're spread out throughout Judah, something like, I forget, at this point, we're probably up to 80 or 90 sites have lamellic jars present at them, and can roughly be dated to the, the late 8th century. That There's a, a caveat, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second, because it's about the dating of these. But traditionally. They were understood to be, um, well, initially they were understood to date to the days of Josiah. Um, and that was based on the interpretation of the stratigraphy at Lachish, where they were discovered in troves. However, when Usishkin from Tel Aviv went back and re-excavated Lachish and had a better understanding of the stratigraphy, he realized that, no, they actually all date to stratum 3, and that's the stratum that is destroyed by Sennacherib in 701 BC. So now we have this archaeological peg for dating these lamellic jars and this whole phenomenon, and it puts us right in the reign of Hezekiah. And so in, in Hezekiah's day, in the late 8th century, it seems you have this system of administrative store jars that are pervasive throughout the country that we don't see before, and we hadn't seen uh, really after that time as well, because the, the number of lamellic jars that we find in strata subsequent to the Assyrian destruction layers Really, you have either different types of store jars or, or hardly any of the lamellic jars at all. So it seemed to have been a very short phenomenon that could be anchored to the very end of the 8th century BC. There's been recent work in uh, the last probably 10, 15 years, particularly by Oded Lipschitz and a couple of his students that have called some of this into question That actually the lamellic store jars are part of a longer phenomenon that actually continues in various forms even into the Hellenistic period. And I think they, he he makes a really good case for the continuity of some of this administration going forward, uh, even though there are some of the um, the specifics that I that you know we would disagree on. But these these jars, what are they representing? Well, that's a question in and of itself. What are the four place names that we have there? And there's been any number of different theories about that, going all the way back to Albright's day and the you know a hundred years ago, as to what are these four place names and are they royal estates? Are they Are they wineries are they something else and even today there's hardly any consensus about most aspects of the lamellic system even though it's the most um extensive ceramic corpus i think we have in in judah
1: yeah And, and and so your your case though is that these um jar handles which show up at 90 different sites only have four place names on them and those four place names represent the main agricultural growing regions from which the food stores or sorry the wine or whatever is being sourced right and then distributed
0: right yeah so that's my so when i added the layer of the geography um to the you know considerations of these four place names which really ha- hadn't been done uh, before i did it you know it's soko it's hebron it's a place called mimeshet or however you want to say it and Zif. so w- where are these located well none of them are in the shway right they're all up in the hill country and why but why is Hebron and why are Zif two places? I mean, they're only separated by something like 12 kilometers. Why so close if you're going to have this kind of evenly distributed system? Well, again, the region of Zif and the region of Hebron are both extremely agriculturally productive. The region of Soko as well, potential, well, I'm sorry, I, I, I misspoke just a second ago. Soko, I would identify as a Soko in the Shweila in the Ila Valley, which is probably the, the easiest of the western Shvelah valleys to defend, because you have the Azekah Ridge that basically forms like a giant uh, wall that, that that limits invasion from that direction. Then the question is this Mameshit, and a lot of research has been done that would, would, I would say, tie it to the region of Ramat Rahel, uh, just south of Jerusalem. So the Bethlehem region, basically, which if you've been there, even today, it's a breadbasket, you know, wheat can grow everywhere. And so these four regions all of a sudden is like, ah, I mean, these are agricultural heartlands right here. And so whether you're growing wheat or grapes or olives, right, we don't necessarily know what was stored in these jars. Nobody's really done a a residue analysis of them. Everyone just assumes that it's wine or oil, but that's never been proved. It probably could have been grain as well because we know they stored grain in similar types of jars in other periods as well. These are the regions where you would want a kind of administrative center if you're going to tap into those those resources to stockpile them, to prepare them, to then ship them kind of throughout the country as might need be. Yeah,
1: I'm surprised that there hasn't been residue analysis on these. I mean, I don't know all the ins and outs of what what that costs, and but it seems like given how
0: pervasive they are that that would have been done. It might be also that the the challenge sometimes the payoff with residue analysis isn't what you want it to be because I think we, we see these great articles about the really fantastic finds that are possible to identify but a lot of times you find more mundane things that you can't always parcel out so you can say yeah there there was wine in here um but yeah for whatever reason I mean maybe there is a study that I'm not aware of but last I I really kind of looked there there hadn't been one done on a lamella jars
1: oh, interesting and so you're You're not only thinking about the Lamellic administrative system of of food stores, you're also thinking about um, what is a location that's a good place to defend. And so what I loved in the maps that you had was all the lines of sight that you showed. So you'd have a place like Rama Rahel and and show what you could see from that location. Um, I hadn't seen that done before. Is that your own innovation? Yeah,
0: I I had been thinking along. Like, there's a study um, in Hebrew. Um, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name who wrote it, um, mm-hmm. where he tried to do something similar, but it wasn't to the extent that I that I did um, because I think he was he was looking at the Lachish letters specifically. Now that I I, I think about it for a second, uh, so he was only thinking in in the you know kind of seventh century uh, context. So I said, well, let's let's see what we can do with an eighth century and is there you know, as part of trying to figure out was there actually a coherent defensive network and as i started to develop and, and lay these lines of sight on you could see that there clearly there clearly was i mean so the sites that were out in the middle of nowhere and made no sense otherwise were perfect for relaying information we're like the central hubs of these lo- of these communication networks and so all of a sudden you're like oh well yeah, okay that makes sense yeah and
1: so it might have been a signal tower plus a little like lookout post or something or and, and you talk about like cities versus towers versus outposts um, so that was helpful too um yeah and and I had written down like so a, a signal, from Beit Shemesh, a, you wrote, a signal would proceed to Zora, Zanoah, Beit Itab, Kirba el-Abhar, and Rum el-Barish. So like the process by which a signal will get to Jerusalem is something you also worked out like, okay, where is this going to have to go
0: <laughs> to reach yeah. Jerusalem, which is fascinating. Yeah. The very Lord of the Rings ask, if you think of the uh, return of the king at the end with exactly. the But again, this is something we know from inscriptions in the Near East that that. They were doing. This is how you communicate over a, a broader space, and so even, I mean, we have the refer, reference in the lakish letters that that's you know they're sending smoke signals, fire signals. So yeah, stands to reason.
1: That leads me to one of my. I have a, just a couple off the beaten path questions for you, uh, and one of them is: Do you think generally about approaches and strategic defenses wherever you are? You know, like some people that they'll go into a a room and like think about how they could get out and that sort of thing so when you like when you go outside are you thinking like okay how would you defend this this
0: location where would an army approach is this stuff you think about in general um every now and then yes i do uh (laughs) but but in general not not usually but sometimes yes um yeah yeah, like when you go
1: over to friends houses you're
0: not like you know I'm this like, oh, this place is very vulnerable. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> you need to, you need to build a defense network in your backyard and yeah. put some traps in the front too, to keep yeah. the cats away. Exactly. Which speaking, I've got too many stray cats that wander around my house that I should build a defensive mm. network. Yeah, exactly. So you probably don't have a huge rat problem
1: then. At no, least. we don't fortunately. Yeah. That's a yeah. That's
0: positive. I hadn't thought of that,
1: but you, your birds probably don't like it. No, they don't. Have, have you ever seen stats on how many birds a year that, house cats and feral cats kill
0: it, it's a ton my father-in-law always tells me this because he he's a big bird guy and so he it is like in me. the billions yeah how many i mean people talk about you know like the uh the the
1: windmills and how, how many they kill it's, it's like in the tens of thousands or something but it's house cats they're the problem yeah. um okay uh what site has been most significant for you in thinking about uh strategic defense like was there a site that it
0: kind of clicked for you Oh, gosh, that's a good question. You know, I as I was going through, I think I just was trying to go through all the excavation materials and survey materials and situate them on, on really good 3D maps, which, again, which is the, the biblical background maps is what I was was working with because they're the only really high-quality topographic maps that that were available at that point in time, and I still think they're the, the best that there are right now. Um, I don't know if there's any single site that that stuck out although when i was looking at the sites in the judean wilderness and you know identifying sites that i argued you know there's a high prob- probability that they date to you know the days of hezekiah or in this time period there's a, a route from en-gedi up towards um basically the bethlehem area and you actually have a limited number of sites along there, all little watchtowers but if you calculate out the the viewshed, basically you can create a, a continuous um, line of communication from the Dead Sea all the way up into the Bethlehem region. So I thought that was pretty cool as I was piecing it together. Like, wait a second. Oh, that's, oh, okay. You can see
1: that's that from cool. here, that from here. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the most significant book in
0: archaeology in the last 50 years? Oh, gosh, probably uh, The Ancient Israelite World that mm. i edited <laughs> just <go> uh, <laughs> look at that that's
1: pretty cool that you got to work on it you know, know the most significant you know. book okay uh, good
0: oh gosh most significant Ooh. book in archaeology that's I, I would have to probably say um it might be david schlone's book the house of the father um where he details as fact and symbol as fact and symbol yeah where mm-hmm. he really lays out um a really sociologically informed understanding of how we look at the ancient Near East and how things operated back then. And he uses not only the texts, but the archeology span and brings them together in the framework of a really well informed kind of theoretical um, and developed methodological approach. And so I, I really appreciated that. And I think I've, you know, to a certain degree tried to replicate that because I, I think we need to work with both corp- corpora, the text and the archeology span in a way to kind of bring them together to see what you know what they can help us to see better.
1: Uh, another question: uh, Chris McKinney is wrong about what he's uh, a, what isn't so he wrong it, about? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good point.
0: <laughs> yeah, where do you start? Yeah, let's see. Kibbutz Uh I'm sorry. The, the place of Ziklag. He mistakenly thinks that it's Tel Oh my and goodness! I, think I and probably I'm guessing 99.9 percent of our listeners would agree that it's at Kibbutz I'm you know I don't want to overestimate, but that's just a guess.
1: Okay, good. We we won't give him a chance to respond. I think that's, that that <laughs> settles that. And most significant personal find at an archaeological site, like that you dug up.
0: That I literally dug up with my own hands. Yeah, um, yeah.
1: Be, besides the almost library at chutzpah that I, heard yeah, about yes, that in the that would have
0: that would have been pretty turned good. out to be soap. Yeah, uh, you know, soap is nice, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'd have to say it's probably a tie. No, it's I, I I excavated a completely intact store jar from Kibbut Kaiafa, so dating to the late 11th century, early 10th century, and you know when I say completely intact, it it wasn't restorable. It was completely intact, aside from one little chip off the rim. No, way. and um, you you generally you do know, don't find them so well preserved, and you know it was such an important find, or such a unique find, I should say, that um. I was tasked with carrying it around to show visitors whenever they came and so i jokingly thought about getting one of those little baby carriers to pop it in and carry it <laughs> and you know to keep it safe of course and you know, give it drinks if it needed something if it was thirsty um yeah but it was you know the fact that it was this completely intact store jar was yeah. really was really cool uh, just yeah day.
1: yeah I mean, it'd be fun to get a replica too and then and then Go show someone and talk about how significant it is, and then sort of drop. trip over <laughs> someone's foot and drop it. <laughs> Start, yeah. Um, going going back to uh, your your project, one of, one of the questions that had driven my interest in this initially was was like, what can we say about wealth disparity at this time? So you mentioned David Shlomo's book, and and you one of the things that surprised me was that the percentage of nuclear family homes at this time, in my mind, I had it that most Israelites lived in extended family houses. And I can't remember the exact time period, but the statistic was three quarters being nuclear family homes and only one quarter or a third, I forget what it was, uh, being an extended family household. So, all right, so you've got that factor,
0: but what else can you say about um, wealth stratification and so on? yeah well yeah I, th- I think that's a really good one to just draw out for a second too because you have a site like Bersheva stratum three in particular this entirely pre-planned city if you will sorry stratum 3 too, um, Oh yeah of course yeah. um it's it's but it's pre-planned and all i think all t- our listeners know that yeah yeah you know, i, mean, I just want to just want to yeah. make sure yeah. um but you have it's all basically three room houses aside from a couple bigger ones where probably an administrator or lived or something else and. You find the same thing at other sites, and so there's clearly this the shift in the social structure. You see that mirrored in the the distribution of ceramic forms as well, the the types of vessels that you find, and the frequency of them changes as you move into, say, the late eighth century, particularly, let's say, the Laquiche Stratum Three ceramic horizon. You have a lot more uh, storage large large bowls and plates. So it seems that in, as opposed to having maybe more family members that will require more materials, you're looking at actually smaller families that are a bit more discreet. And potentially you're even looking at soldiers who have a limited uh, ration type of food supply. So the the whole shift in the ceramic repertoire is really interesting and goes with the change in the architecture that you see at that time period. Now as far as the actual wealth goes, on the one hand it's kind of tough to say because I think there's a lot of perishable wealth that we're just not just doesn't remain for us to know, particularly if we think about, you know, if Jerusalem had wealth, well, what's been preserved and would it be preserved? The answer to the second question in my mind is no, it wouldn't be preserved. So it's difficult to evaluate how much there actually was there. We have to bring in the text at this point. And here you see, you know, kind of across the board, whether we're talking Isaiah, Micah, Amos. Both in the Northern Kingdom, but also in the Southern Kingdom, that there's a social disparity that people are falling through the cracks. And one possible example that ties into this, you have this this bowl that was excavated at Beit Shemesh back in the I forget, 80s or 90s or so. And it mentions um, you know, basically like my brother. And the interpretation is, is that possibly this is an offering bowl for people to bring goods into supply, which then can be redistributed to to those in need, which is, you know, ties into some of the Deuteronomic laws that we find, um, you know, in the biblical text.
1: Yeah, I thought that that bowl was interesting. I actually looked up the, the image of it, um, this thing where you potentially, according to Gabby Barcai, give an offering for, for your brother. Um, and we know Deuteronomy had laws related to sort of off quote unquote offerings that didn't go to the temple, but were distributed uh, to people yeah fascinating um, stuff about the kind of economic situation Uh, real quick because we're running uh, short on time what can we say
0: about uh Hezekiah's preparations in Jerusalem itself yeah that's another good question and I think some of the long-held views have changed a bit or at least have been questioned in recent years just because of the the kind of ongoing excavations in the city of David and more recent kind of treatments of say Hezekiah's tunnel or some of the other, um, aspects of the water system. And I would, I would argue that we still, we've got obviously the broad wall in Jerusalem, which I think is pretty clearly dated to the end of the eighth century. So it should be associated with the wall that is, um, is being condemned in Isaiah 21, that Hezekiah is building and tearing down houses to build. So I think that that's probably a pretty good association that we have there.
1: Come on Isaiah give give some practical um alternatives then you know like you're you're trying to defend against the Assyrians
0: yeah. <laughs> well you got Yahweh no, no but That's it's, all you need yeah
1: so. i mean it, it, and just for listeners who haven't been there this broad wall that he's either built or built up around Jerusalem is is 25 feet thick i mean this this
0: thing is a beast mm-hmm. um beast of a wall so yeah really massive yeah and the question of you know because we have these references in second chronicles 32 of what hezekiah does of some of what he does at least and it mentions it leaves a bit ambiguous It, it talks about storehouses and granaries and all these other types of things and then specifically building the the water channel and which is paralleled to a certain degree in second kings it talks about hezekiah building the the pool and the aqueduct now unfortunately you know, these details aren't specific enough to allow us easily to identify features that we find in the archaeology today, because there's several rock cut pools and aqueducts and channels in Jerusalem, not only in the city of David, but also kind of on the western hill to the outside of the Jaffa gate or the kind of northwestern corner of the old city of of Jerusalem. And so, you know, is something like Hezekiah's pool in the old city, does that actually go back to the first temple period, and is there is there a pool that would have been conducted connected with an aqueduct? Well, potentially. And there's remains outside of the old city that have been excavated in the last ten years or so that you have some structures that would make us think that perhaps this is the area of say the Fuller's Field where they're bringing water and doing stuff. Again, this is mentioned in Isaiah, but. We don't have a smoking gun, so to speak, that says, you know, this is, this is the place for sure, but you know, there's, there's some,
1: has there been rethinking about Hezekiah's tunnel? Like what, what's the thinking about that right yeah, now?
0: Yeah. Some thinking, um, in some of the more recent ones, and it, it seems like it changes so often that I don't know if I even know the, the most recent, uh, formulation of it, but it was thought that it was cut in.
1: It was actually built by Herod the Great. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, there Fortunately, no one has said that. Although there were claims that the inscription uh, in Hezekiah's tunnel was was Hasmonean or Hellenistic, which was pretty quickly debunked and said that's just not possible. Um, And I would I would agree with the the arguments for that, obviously. But one of the the questions is um, is it Hezekiah? What we know today as Hezekiah's tunnel is that the tunnel is being referred to in the biblical text, or is it a portion of what we call Channel Two that's actually What's being referred to and so channel two if you know is the basically the dry channel so if you go to jerusalem today and want to go down to hezekiah's tunnel you can either walk through that tunnel and get wet or you can go through the dry channel which is the earlier one that runs along the east side of the city of david so there's thinking that, that that channel was cut in multiple phases and you you know you can see changes in kind of the direction but also there's offsets in the stone itself it's always difficult with these rock cut features though to date them and know precisely because. You can't really date it. There's no pottery left, per se, or other objects that are easy to identify. There's another idea, though, that I think is really quite interesting. And this is um, one by a guy named David Gurevich. And he argues that the kind of so called aqueduct that comes out of the northwestern corner of the temple platform is actually the conduit that the text is referring to that was cut in the days of Hezekiah. And I really like this idea and we actually are hoping to bring him on the podcast as well and have him talk about this at some point in time. Oh, Um, so it's it's basically, you know, you have this iron age aqueduct that was then reused and and expanded and cut in the Hellenistic in, in the, the, um, the Herodian period as well. And so I think there's something really to that and he can kind of detail all the, the archeological aspects that led him to that.
1: As you step back and think about like what you did in your, project on Hezekiah preparing for the onslaught of the Assyrians what are what's like a takeaway that you want you would want listeners to have in terms of um maybe payoff for reading scripture or about the discipline of archaeology geography and text like what are some what's a sort of payoff point that you would want to make yeah I,
0: I think the big payoff is that the more at home you are with the geography and with the lay of the land the more it allows you to read the text through ancient eyes it allows you to i think intuit some of what is being left unsaid and allows you to really get a better sense of the worldview because there is a lived experience a lived landscape that these authors are kind of writing from and that that factor into the way they they live life the way they uh, view things the way they make their metaphors And if you don't have that if you don't have this fundamental understanding of the landscape you really you know you're you've kind of cut your feet out from underneath of you at least in my view yeah
1: yeah great well uh thanks so much kyle for being willing to talk about this and um yeah i look forward to uh learning more uh, from you about the assyrian period and and its implications uh but this was a, a rich study and i look forward to maybe seeing
0: it in book form someday as well. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. I, there's some, some good updating that needs to be done, but who knows? Maybe it'll yeah. happen. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks a lot. Yep. You're welcome. You've been listening to Onscript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting donate. Until next time, keep digging.